Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. And today, we're getting our hands dirty with, well, dirt. Across Seattle, there are over 90 city-approved pea patches used by community gardeners. But how did they get there? And why is it called a pea patch anyway? If you haven't already seen the video, you can find it in the show notes or on crosscut.com. And I think it'll provide a lot of context for the conversation that Knut and I are about to have. But for now, roll up your sleeves and start digging with us. Knut, what was the inspiration or the peg that made you start digging on this story about pea patches? That's an interesting question because, you know, I have a brown thumb. I'm not a, a gardener <laughs> or a farmer by any means. I was actually working on a series for Crosscut uh, about early examples of kind of sustainable urban urbanism in the city. So looking at the birth of the condo movement and various things. And while I was researching that, I came across uh, an article uh, in the 1962 Seattle PI about uh, a farm in Wedgwood. And uh, this man named Rainey Picardo was dubbed sort of the last farmer in the city of Seattle. And I was surprised that there were farms that late. And so I just began poking around and lo and behold, it turned out that that farm, part of it still exists. So what does that have to do with pea patches? Well, I always thought the pea and pea patch was like peas, P-E-A patch. Or public patch. Public patch, whatever. It never occurred to me it was actually named after a particular family, the Picardo family. So it actually is Picardo patch. So how did the, that, those two histories come together, the history of the pea patch and the history of the Picardo uh, family of farmers. Yeah, well, so the Picardo family immigrated to uh, Seattle in the 1890s. Uh, they came from near Naples in a village. And uh, there was some thought, I think, about going up to the Klondike, but they, they ended up in uh, South Park. And that area was largely agricultural at that time. And so they did what they knew, which was farming, and began farming. And, of course, back at the turn of the century, uh, particularly the early 20th century, um, the Pike Place Market was an outlet for local farmers. Um, this is pre-supermarket. There was a lot of concern about how do you feed a growing urban population? And the Pike Place Market um, offered a solution to, uh, you know— feed with locally grown produce uh, this growing urban population and to do it, of course, without having to go through the middlemen, the warehouse folks who jacked up prices and that kind of thing. So the Ricardos were very much a part of that. And they eventually moved up to the Green Lake area and they were looking for property in the north end and they found uh, a swamp, a swampy patch of land called the Ravenna Swamp which is in what's now Wedgwood. And they established a large farm there and began yeah, working the land and selling at the Pike Place Market. And it uh, had been going ever since. 
So this family farm existed until when? Well, it existed into the 19, well into the 1960s, but development, post-war development was cropping up. Of course, Ravenna and Wedgwood were hopping with new homes. Um, the family was facing increased property taxes, so they began selling off pieces of the farm. And essentially, they had, you know, a fairly small uh, piece of land left that they, the family was continuing to cultivate. So in the early 70s, a member of the Puget Consumers Co-op named Darlin Del Boca, formerly Runberg, was inspired by Earth Day and the do-it-yourself DIY movement. She got the idea of working with Rainy Picardo to have part of that land gardened with fruits and vegetables by local kids. And so they worked out an arrangement, and the idea was that they would raise food and they would then donate it to neighbors in need, organizations like that that came about during the Boeing Recession when Seattle had massive unemployment. began in 1969, lasted several years into the early 70s. And um, and so, you know, it, it sort of found a, a current new application for helping people in distress. When did the city start getting involved and what's the evolution there? So in the early 70s, Runberg, after getting this project going, met a candidate for the Seattle City Council named John Miller, later became an ambassador and a, and a congressman. And he he loved the idea of, you know, this um, – it wasn't called a pea patch then, but essentially this small garden that was doing good in the community. And you know, they began to sort of look at, um, gee, could, could the city get involved and do this here but in other places? And there were several things that drove that. One was there was a lot of concern at the time about open space. Farms around Seattle, places like the Snoqualmie Valley or the Kent Valley, these places, they were going away. So food was getting produced further and further from the city. And the city wanted to effectively demolish <laughs> the Pike Place market. In 1950, a plan was promoted to raise the entire market and turn it into a gigantic parking structure, department stores, and a rooftop park. Which was the alternatives food source for people who didn't want to use the big shopping centers. Can you imagine? They wanted to demolish the Pike Place Market and build condos. Then in 1963, a Seattle business group called the Central Association created yet another plan to tear down the market and replace it with several high-rise office buildings, a park, a hotel, and, of course, an even bigger parking structure than was proposed in 1950. Yeah, they wanted to build high-rises and parking lots, and, you know, it was all part of that sort of bulldozer-oriented urban renewal movement. Right. And they would have had federal money to help pay to do it. Well, in 1971, the voters rejected the city's plan to demolish the Pike Place market. Some 53,000 people voted to demolish the market but over 76,000 voted to restore it, preserving it for future generations. So there was a lot of consciousness raised at that time about the importance of local food. Farm to table is what we call it now, but it was essentially the same thing. And so the city 
had kind of the citizens of the city had demanded that the city recommit to that. And at the same time, I think people were much, you know, very concerned about, increasingly concerned about sustainable food, organic food, foods that you can't get elsewhere, you know, that maybe particular ethnic communities would be looking for. So all of this kind of created support for the idea of neighborhood and community uh, pea patches based on this idea that had started at Picardo Farm. And Picardo Farm became the first city pea patch. I bet if you ask anybody on the street what the P in P patch means, they would have no idea, right? I just learned this, that P is for Picardo. Yeah, unless you've read uh, a history link story or a crosscut story or uh, a city website, sometimes you, you could pick that up. But uh, yeah, most people have no idea. What an incredible legacy. Well, it really is. For the is. Picardo family. Yeah, it really is. And they, you know, they worked with the city to uh, work out an arrangement where they could sort of do it on a trial basis for about a year and then were able to leverage that. Interestingly, you know, they had a lot of support on the city council because the city council, sort of in the wake of the Pike Place Market uh, debate, had really turned over and a kind of, there was a... A, a more diverse council and uh, more kind of progressive um, thinkers, including, interestingly, both Miller and, and Bruce Chapman, who's known more now for the Discovery Institute, but they really pushed this idea. Both Republicans. Both Republicans. They, they pushed this idea of um, getting these um, pea patches up and running in the early 70s. So something we don't think about today so why were Miller and Chapman so interested in this? Well, Miller had been, you know, introduced to this idea from a from sort of a grassroots person. I'm sure he thought it was good politics, but he was one of the one of the politicians who was very concerned about vanishing open space. So I think part of it had to do with can we preserve through sustainable urban gardening, can we pre uh, preserve open space in communities and neighborhoods in Seattle. So I think that was one of the things. Bruce Chapman had seen community pea patches in Denmark. He had visited Denmark and from the train had seen these uh, pea patches that were along railroad tracks and in various other places. And he just thought it was a good idea. He, he you know, they're doing it in Europe. Yeah, why, why wouldn't that work here? I mean, there used to be and this is just kind of interesting. I mean, Seattle had farms, you know, really up into the early 20th century. We had dairies. We had slaughterhouses. We had chicken farms, uh, chicken ranches. Um, agriculture was part of the early fabric of the city, not just in the pioneer period, but in some of its biggest growth years. And over time, regulation had eliminated a lot of um, that kind of activity from the city for public health reasons, also for NIMBY reasons. People didn't want to live next to a chicken ranch. Or My neighborhood, Rainier Valley, used to be called Garlic Gulch. You and I, you know, I grew up in Garlic Gulch, and Garlic Gulch, Rainier Valley, was full of, 
you know, what we used to call truck farms or victory gardens from World War II, you know. Victory gardens. We can grow food for victory in our own backyards because so long as this war lasts, great quantities of food must be grown. But these Italian families that moved into the Rainier Valley were, like the Picardos, they were growing food to eat. And there were a lot of food businesses there, Oberto's, Boricini's, um, Sacco's Grocery. I mean, these things were still going when I was a kid in the late 1950s and early 60s. Our neighbors were, many of them were Italians and had gardens. So it had been a thing. And it had also been a thing that, you know, was uh, very important for immigrant communities. You know, you're talking about people from not just from Italy, but from Southeast Asia, influx of folks from there. There were people who wanted to be able to grow what they ate. They were used to it. They were farmers in their home countries and wanted to be able to do the same here. I think the idea, it seems to me that the idea of Victory Gardens has endured, that in times of scarcity or need, it is possible to raise your own food. And in doing that, a lot of people, including my family, have found great satisfaction in it. Well, this this brings up an interesting point because the the success of the Picardo farm was the city basically saying, putting out uh, the announcement to people, hey, if you want to grow a patch of this garden, you know, you can apply. And hundreds of people responded. So it wasn't the kind of thing where they were pushing this on people. People were like, yes, yes, this is what we want. And then the city has started creating uh, pea patches all over the city. I mean, to me, one of the, one of the amazing things is all the different places they are now. We shot part of this episode on top of a parking garage near Seattle Center. There's a pea patch on top of the Seattle Center parking garage. There are pea patches in wealthy communities. There are pea patches in communities of that, that struggle where there's food deserts. They address problems of the modern city. And... I think they're also seen as community binding materials, that one of the advantages is in many communities, pea patches are a gathering place, a uh, place for entertainment. Uh, People will have uh, parties, festivals, uh, movie nights, whatever, in in the local pea patch. And so they kind of, yeah, provide some sense of community glue as well as, uh, you know, corn, zucchinis, endless zucchinis. <laughs> and they're public spaces. Yes. They're public spaces where people come and talk to each other and work together and, you know, all those good things. The the big pea patch on top of the Mercer Street garage is uh, certainly unique in that it features, among many fruits and vegetables and flowers, a 1964 Ford LTD car in the middle of the garden. <laughs> I'm glad you knew what what uh, may, model and make it was. Well, I'm a car is. nerd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because 
you can't exclude the sort of beginning of the pea patch era with, I mean, the 60s and 70s rising consciousness about the environment, about organics, all of that, sustainability. Um, you know, that helped, I think, push this forward at the grassroots level. Um, and the, the, the converting of a parking space with a car in it to a garden while the car is still there and there's this giant plant coming out of the roof. Yes, the, the car is a vessel for growing things now. Yes, exactly. But it's, it's a great sculpture. It's a great right. kind of commentary on what's possible, of course, in the era of climate change and, and uh, you know, worrying about fossil fuels and stuff. It makes a, it makes a great humorous comment, classic Seattle style. That's right. It's very uh, – quite an irony. And if you've never been up to the uh, pea patch on top of the Mercer Street garage, you should go. The, the color of that car, I can't describe what the color is. It is so iridescent. It's yeah, such a it's beautiful kind of a sculpture. Purple, pink, uh, <laughs> mauve, blue, uh, which changes with every direction of the sun. What has been the opposition to pea patches? And I would think that the pea patch on top of a parking garage at Seattle Center, burgeoning, busy Seattle Center, would probably be an example. Yeah, well, there was a lot of controversy over whether the Seattle Center had the parking capacity when they were looking at, at redoing the old key arena into Climate Pledge Arena and having a hockey team and where were all these people going to be parking. And uh, so, yes, my understanding was the city thought about getting rid of that peat patch and opening up to parking to help solve that problem. But there was a grassroots protest against it against shutting it down. And I, so I think I think the grassroots support for pea patches is way stronger than than any organized opposition. The picture of Climate Pledge Arena versus pea patch is just crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, because it is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that the Picardo family farm persisted into the 1960s. I would have thought that development would have pushed them out long before that. Well, they really, you know, Rainey Picardo really wanted to hang on. And and, and Rainey was the... Rainey Picardo, yeah, descendant of Ernesto Picardo, who was the original uh, patriarch of the Italian family. And it was a family enterprise, brothers, sons, daughters, um, you know, I've seen pictures that show the Picardo family and their people that work for them lined up against these uh, you know, like 1920s trucks that are just stacked high with produce from the farm uh, that they're preparing to go down to the, to the market. And there are women and children in the picture along with the guys in overalls. And um, so I think I think as with a lot of farming families, farming is kind of in your blood. You can't really imagine doing anything else. And I think it was probably painful for them to begin to kind of have to whittle away the farm with this sort of march of suburban growth, essentially. But, I, you know, it's, it's a testament that that family tradition um, 
you know, stays strong. The Picardo family is still here and, you know, its descendants. Um, they have knowledge about, you know, one of the things I think I mentioned in the, in the script was they, they um, made wine during Prohibition. You know, and a lot of ethnic communities, you know, refused to give up their traditional <laughs> beverages. And the Picardos grew grapes and made wine, and they would bury the jugs in the, what's now <laughs> the Picardo pea patch. Uh, they would bury the jugs to hide them from, you know, the revenuers and the, and the anti-booze uh, anti squads and whatnot. So, you know, there's a lot of great stories that they've been able to tell, a lot of great pictures they've been able to share. Um, and, yeah, I think I think pride and connection with the land was something. I think he very much wanted to find a solution to losing that property that would get him off the hook from those property taxes. He was getting too old to farm. Other family members uh, were involved in uh, non-agricultural activities, but he wanted that legacy somehow to continue, and this allowed that to happen. But he he really made it happen. If, if he had been opposed to it, it never would have happened. Is there any vestige left of the Picardo farm at that Wedgwood location? Yes. It, it's the, the piece of it that was the first city pea patch is there at 25th and 80th. Yeah, so it still exists in in that, you know, what's now a patch, not a thirty plus acre <laughs> farm, overlooking uh, Ravenna and Wedgwood. My observation is pea patches really vary throughout the city. There are small ones and there are huge ones. Yeah, some are very sort of intimate. Some are points of community activism. The Belltown pea patch, for example was central to organizing the preservation of old worker, cannery worker housing in Belltown. Some have been in some of the most poverty-stricken or troubled neighborhoods in Seattle. There's one in Cortland that played a big role in kind of lifting that community to to a different level. So, and yeah, I mean, there are pea patches downtown. There are pea patches in the most far-flung neighborhoods of the city. There are, what, over 90 in all. I mean, now you find people growing corn on their parking strips or, you know, some of the Southeast Asian communities planted gardens in things that were just grassy banks by Martin Luther King Way. In fact, uh, speaking of Rainier Valley, right across from what was Six Stadium, there's a hillside there that, um, you know, was turned into an impromptu pea patch. And it used to be called Cheapskate Hill because that's where people would go to watch the ball games without paying. My uncle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My uncle bought a house there just for that purpose. <laughs> right up on 24 South. Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. This is the 50th anniversary of the Pea Patch program, and I can't help but wonder if the Pea Patch movement has also spawned the drive for larger urban farms. Yeah, I, I think it has. I mean, I think it's raised awareness of 
what you know pea patches can do for communities. And the fact that there is land in the city that can be used to grow food I, down the road from my house, and I have some experience with it, the Rainier Beach Urban Farm and Wetlands, which used to be a large nursery for the Parks Department to develop plants and now has been turned over to the Rainier Beach Urban Farm and Tilth Alliance to not only grow food for people who need it, and it's quite a large operation, but also to teach young people, and especially young people of color, the ins and outs of growing food and the pleasures and the joys of growing your own food. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just a lot more awareness about the way farms that are integrated into the food chain of a, of a large city have multiple benefits. I mean, in the 1960s, everybody thought the future was supermarkets. You know, all the neighborhood grocery stores disappeared. The Pike Place market was under threat of the wrecking ball. And now you've got 90-some pea patches around the city. You have these urban agriculture projects. People are realizing it's a way to um, eliminate things like food deserts. Um, you know, there's so many urban issues that it addre they address or have caused people to um, address. And, you know, it also came along at a time when that the consciousness was shifting from the supermarkets. And it seems to be an activity that was also directed at increasing equity as far as food, not only food, but availability and accessibility to healthy food. Right. And I think that was, in a sense, a, a revival of an idea that predated now. <laughs> that was one of the rationales for the Pike Place Market was people of different ethnicities could come and they could not overpay for food that was the prices of which were being jacked up by middlemen. So I think there was an understanding of that at one point. And then certainly in, in the later period of chain stores and supermarkets, it got sort of steamrollered. I mean, the parts of the Rainier Valley didn't have grocery stores at one point. Still don't. Yeah. And so people are finding solutions to that. And, and those things have tendrils that go back to, I think, the intentions of the people who conceived and executed the first pea patches. One thing is true. When you walk into a garden space of any kind, but uh, especially a community garden, I think it's just a calming effect on you. It's just to see people or whether you're engaging in it yourself, uh, growing things, growing food, working the earth is a very special feeling. Uh, you know, Voltaire said, when times are tough, you cultivate your garden because it takes your mind off of everything else. The task is immediately... It, immediately at hand. And it's just something you do. And then, of course, there's, there's the benefit of that. But I do know that when I, when I go into a garden, and I'd encourage people to visit, for instance, the Mercer Street Garage Garden, you're entering into a, a, a different atmosphere. And it feels good. Yeah, you certainly are. When we were up there shooting, you're very aware of there were hummingbirds there were other birds twittering nearby. There are wind chimes. It's a calming 
uh, kind of environment. You see people working in their garden. You see the way people have personalized their gardens with what they've chosen to grow or putting up wind socks or, you know, whatever. There's this personal feeling about it. It's, it's not cookie cutter. I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback Podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.